0: Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Acts. Today we're in Acts chapter 11. We've been working through this little new catechism. The kids, it's got uh, 50-some questions. Last week is, who is God? God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And this week is... How many persons are in the Godhead? There are three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's kind of uh, fun. I've been teaching my grandy that, and my son-in-law said, knock it off. I said, why? He said, well, I'm trying to teach her her scripture verse for one way, and you're winning. Yes, I am. (laughs) So she can learn both at the same time also wanted to let you know that you may or may not know we've worked with another church, St. Germain Evangelical Free Church, to plant a multi-site in Rhinelander, which then will become part of St. Germain, not part of Highland. But we've been working on it for two years. Today is the uh, first service that's public. In fact, Dan Shields will be there. And then uh, sometime in October... Uh, Andrew's preaching there one Sunday, and I'm going to also preach there, but it will be their multi site. But we've been working on this for two years or a year and a half, and today is the grand opening, so we're kind of excited about that. Yeah. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as believers. We thank you for this new evangelical free church in Rhinelander. We pray, Father, that it would have a wonderful beginning today. They've been meeting together privately for quite some time, but now it's a grand opening. We ask that many who do not know Christ or are unchurched might come to that campus and come to know Jesus or, if they know Jesus, to grow in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be with Pastor Justin, who is the campus pastor there, give him wisdom, and Joss Reese, who is the senior pastor at St. Germain, give them wisdom as they guide and lead this new campus. Father, we pray for our opportunity in our campuses to study your word, to worship you this morning. Guide us, empower us, allow us to know more about you. And to apply it rightly. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Sometimes things that are new are frightening. I think about a letter. It was actually uh, January 31st, 1829. That Martin Van Buren, who was the governor of New York, sent a letter to the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. If you know anything about Andrew Jackson, he'll serve two terms. His second term, his vice president will actually be the governor of New York who sent this letter. Let me tell you about the letter. It says something like this. Mr. President, you ought to be alarmed. You may know that these steel carriage carts, railroads, are going at breakneck speeds. God never intended for man to go at 15 miles per hour. (laughs) And as they go, they snoot all through the countryside, setting fields on fire and scaring livestock, women, and children. I don't know about men. He didn't mention that. They were probably afraid too. And he goes on to say that we need to do something about this. The problem was that railroad was new to Governor Martin Van Buren. And what is new is sometimes alarming to us. That's actually true in today's text. We saw last week in Acts chapter 10 that God sent Peter to Cornelius' house a Gentile, and you remember God said, what I call clean, do not call unclean. And go and share the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone with the Gentiles because I have a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it was new and it was frightening, but Peter went. But in today's text, we get the backlash of the church of Jerusalem, the Jewish church, that hears that the gospel is spreading and they're quite alarmed because what is new is sometimes frightening. In this regard, I think of a woman named Dottie. She was a school teacher, a history teacher, taught in social studies. And one particular summer, she thought, I'm gonna go visit a number of the places that I've taught my students about. And she had a little Chevy car with a little trailer on the back with a pop-up, and she began to drive, and she was on I-5 near Sacramento in California. And at that point, the water pump burst, and she didn't know what to do, not being very mechanical, but being a Christ follower, she prayed and asked the Lord to send an angel, preferably with mechanical skills, And almost immediately when she said amen, a big Harley pulled up with a very large guy, long hair and tats. He got out and he worked on her water pump and she barely said a word. She was shocked, she was horrified. He was different than her and she was different than him. They were very different type of people. And when he finally completed it, she could barely squeak out thanks. And he realized that she was stunned by what he looked like compared to what she looked like. And she, he said, don't judge a book by its cover. You never know who you might be speaking to. And he drove off. And she thought, Lord, I, I asked for an angel, not a hell's angel, but, but I asked for an angel and, and you sent one to me. What was the problem? The problem was sometimes things that are unfamiliar to us seem rather frightening. And that is clearly true with the gospel going forth into the Gentile world. That is scary. That is alarming to the church at Jerusalem. I want to pick up in our text. I want to read from Acts 11 verses 19 to 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember in Acts 7, Stephen is the first known Christian martyr, and actually Saul, who would become Paul, presides over it. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This one happens to be Syrian Antioch. We'll talk about that in a moment. They began to speak the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, began to speak to Greek speakers, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, that's actually in Turkey, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You remember back in Acts 1-8. You kind of remember how the book begins. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is actually a book in which God has commissioned the church in Jerusalem, to go forth into all the world, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's how the book begins. And you will have power to do it when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which he does in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And so the church has been commissioned 2,000 years ago and still today to go forth. But we know from the book of Acts that the church largely did not go forth especially the apostles. We have Philip going forth and few others. The apostles seem to stay in Jerusalem. And so God sends some persecution. The hand of God is in this. I don't think it's predominantly disciplinarian, though it is that, but it is purposeful. God is sending forth his church. They won't do it. They don't obey. So God raises up the heat. He raises up the difficulty in their lives. He even allows persecution to hit Jerusalem, scattering the church, fulfilling his purposes. And we say, thank goodness God doesn't work that way today. Except you remember in Hebrews chapter 13, 4 and following, it says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We remember in Malachi 3.16, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O people of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, God's methodologies actually do change. But his purposes never change. World evangelism. His character never changes. He desires to work through us. And he wills to work through us. That has not changed. And so we look at the text and we say, wow. Wow. When the church does nothing, when Christ followers do nothing, when they don't utilize what God has entrusted to us in time and talent and treasure, this God has a history of turning up the heat and forcing us out of our comfort zones. He wants us to be engaged where we work, where we live, where we recreate, the people we come in contact with are Jerusalem and care about Judea and Samaria and care about the end of the earth. And when the church has not done that historically, God has turned up the heat. Why? Because missions exist because the universal worship of God does not exist. Missions exist because people need to hear about the Lord and God has chosen... For himself, a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Last week, I mentioned Revelation 4 and 5. This week, Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude. This is the vision that John has given. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, etc. God has claimed for himself individuals from all over the globe, and he expects, he demands, he commands that you and I engage in bringing people to Christ. Perhaps in light of what happened in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is sent to Cornelius, the church begins to slowly embrace Gentiles. Some of them are scattered to Antioch. Now, this is a bit confusing. Sometimes when we read names in scripture, I'll make the comment, this is confusing because we have like eight of these guys with the same name, right? Herod's a great example there are five and you could really argue six different Herods all using the same name. It's a family name and you got to figure out which Herod you got because the gospel contains, the gospels contain five of them. And there's really a six that goes by another name, but he's also a Herod. Well, we have the same problem with Antioch, except it's worse. Back in 300 BC, Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, Went all over the world, and he had a general named Seleucius I Nicator, whose father's name was Antiochus or Antioch. And in honor of his father, he named no less than 16 cities Antioch. And that's a bit of a problem. We have, you know, like Pisidian Antioch. This is actually Syrian Antioch, which by itself is confusing because it's not in modern day Syria, it's in modern day south-central Turkey, but it was at one time in Syria. This is Syrian Antioch. The historian Josephus tells us a little bit about the city in his book of war, the third volume of war. He tells us that it is outside of Rome, the third habitable city in the empire of Rome, now that doesn't make sense to us, but what he's actually saying is this. In the Roman Empire, Rome was the largest city, and then Alexandria, and then Ephesus, because you don't count Rome, it's the third habitable city. You have this Antioch, it's the third largest city outside of Rome in the Roman Empire. How large is it? It's 500,000 people. 475,000 Gentiles, 25,000 Jews. Predominantly, it is Roman and Greek and Arab with a smattering of Jews. That's the population. What is Antioch like? It's a world-class cosmopolitan city. It is filled with idolatry. It is dedicated to temples to Artemis and Apollo. So by nature and by practice, this is a city of idolatry. It was also a city of incredible immorality. They had what they called pleasure parks where people would go and out in the view of everyone, they would engage in all sorts of immorality. That's what this city was known for. And God hates immorality. You don't believe that. Read Revelation 2.6, where God said, I hate the deeds of the Nickelodeons, and the Nickelodeons are a cult of immorality. God doesn't hate the Nickelodeons. He hates the deeds of the Nickelodeons. So even though God hates what is going on in Antioch, he loves the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so he hates what's going on. He hates the climate, not temperature, but the culture of the land. He, he hates it, but he loves people, all people, and he's named for himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and therefore he sends persecution. He ups the temperature, he ups the, the, the heat on the church to send them into Antioch. And the kicker is he's still doing that today. He still wants you, me, us, to go into the world, to care about the world, people who are far from the gospel, people who are very immoral, very unethical, maybe of a different political persuasion, maybe a different skin color or nationality or ethnicity, a very different culture. He loves those people and he wants us to love them as well. He wants us to teach them, Romans ten thirteen: all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He wants us to express, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He wants us to teach Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which humanity may be saved. That's the message of the gospel that he wants us to take into our schools, into our places of work, into our neighborhoods, into our places of recreation, and into the world. God's love for the teeming masses continues today. We too have metropolitan and rural areas that are far from God. We have some who deny the existence of God. They're atheistic. They're actually denying the law of God that is written on their hearts. That's what we read in both Romans 1 and Romans 3. We have individuals who believe that maybe a God is there, but he doesn't care, a deistic God. We have individuals who are idolatrous. They chase after some other God. We have many that embrace the opposite of what we warned about by Isaiah 520, where he says, do not call good what I have called evil. Do not call evil what I have called good. Do not call darkness light and light darkness. Do not call what is bitter sweet and what is sweet bitter. And we might say, well, okay, but that's like many people today. And God says, yes. And I don't want them to do that. And I want you to teach them not to do that. But I don't want you to disregard them. They matter to me. They matter greatly to me locally and globally Go share the gospel. In fact, it's the hand of the Lord, verse 21. This is a very common phrase in the Old Testament. The hand of the Lord always meant that God was going to be engaged. God was going to get involved. We might be surprised. It's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. It'll be also in Acts 12 or 13 and somewhere in Luke. That's it. That's all we've got of the hand of the Lord. that doesn't mean God's not engaged, but when we read this phrase, it tells us that God is hyper engaged. This is not neutral to God. This is not one of those little asterisks. If we get around to caring about people, we get around to caring about the Lord or the, the world, then it's, it's okay, it can be on the back burner. When we read this phrase, the hand of the Lord, it's kind of like bolding and underlining And highlighting, and instead of 10 font, it's 20 font. This matters to God. God is engaged, and he's sending the church out, even to the point of persecution, to Antioch. Why do missions matter? Because people matter. And without Christ, individuals are lost eternally. Understandably, the church was a bit concerned They thought initially, wrongly, they should have seen books like Jonah in the Old Testament. They should have seen that God has a global vision from the beginning, but the church largely thought it was just about Jews. And then we have the account in Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius, and suddenly the church in Jerusalem is saying, wow, what is God doing? And they're a little bit concerned because new things are are a little bit concerning, and they're fearful to us. And so they say, we're going to send one of our best and our brightest. And they send Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, as we've already seen, is, is a man that is named Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus, an island. He's now come over to the church in Jerusalem. And he's such a man of God, they've given him a new nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And they send Barnabas into Antioch and I think to myself what if they had sent oh someone like Peter who needs a dream like three times what if they had sent and we can fill in the blank an individual that kind of wants to keep God in a box and kind of wants a sanitized Christianity I often say ministry is messy And the messier the church, the more ministry that's going on. It's just the truth. If the church is only about believers and only has an internal focus without an external focus, it's not messy. You got a bunch of robots doing the same things to the boredom of all. Yon say the angels. Ministry is messy and so I wonder what would have happened if they had sent somebody that wants to keep God in a box, but instead they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas looks at what's going on. And the methodology is probably different. The clientele is very different. And we're in Antioch, it's a city teeming with immorality. You got pleasure gardens just around the corner. You have a temple to Artemis, a temple to Apollos. It's just one of those places you say, I don't know, maybe hands off. Let such people burn in hell. If we say that, they just might, right? And that's not to deny God's sovereignty in election. God is sovereign in election. You can't read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and Ephesians 1 without knowing that God is sovereign in election. And those whom God chooses, he will have. And yet, and yet the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you won't be saved. And yet the Bible says that God chooses to use the church and how those three parts all work together is way beyond my pay grade, but I know they do. And so while God's sovereignty works election and while an individual must choose God or rightly be damned and while the church must be engaged in evangelism, well, all three of those are true. They weren't just true in the first century. They're true in the 21st century. And God sends us to share the gospel. Barnabas understood this and he shared the gospel and then those who were coming to faith, he enthusiastically exhorted them, verse 23, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then he goes, verses 25 and 26, to Tarsus. That's where Paul was born. Saul, Paul is in Tarsus. He goes there and he brings Saul, Paul, from Tarsus to Antioch. Now, if you know anything about Paul, Saul and Barnabas, they've got an interesting history. They go together, they don't go together. They serve together, and then they don't. And early on, it is always Barnabas and his companions, or Barnabas and Saul. And sometimes it's Barnabas and Saul together. And by Acts 13, it is Saul, Paul, and his companions. And Barnabas is still there, but he's no longer on the marquee. He doesn't get top billing. You see, Saul Paul has more pronounced gifts than Barnabas. Barnabas knows that. There's no doubt he is aware that Saul Paul is more gifted than he is. Now, if you are leading something And you've been sent by the church to Antioch. And you're going to be there for a year. And you're the leader. Are you going to go get somebody with more gifts than you and bring them? Knowing full well that you are going to end up being second fiddle. But that's exactly what Barnabas does. That's Barnabas' life. He cares more about the kingdom of God and the advancement of God's kingdom than he does about whose name is on the marquee. Well, this is my dream. I've been the senior pastor at Highland for 20 some years and I've got a number of years still. But then, then I look at these young guys on staff a bunch of whom have more pronounced gifts than I do, they're just not as old and mature as I am yet. My dream is in a certain number of years that two of them or so uh, become senior pastor along with me for one year, and then they become the senior pastor and I become Dave Mahler. And uh I give my wisdom when I'm asked, but otherwise I don't. And I counsel and I teach Sunday school. That's the way the kingdom ought to work. In Barnabas's case, he is a godly enough man to go from first fiddle to second fiddle to actually out of the pages of Scripture. Because that's what the kingdom needed. And he saw individuals more gifted than himself. And at the proper time, he moved aside and allowed Saul Paul to take his place. And what were the results? Well, verse 26 says, A great many were taught. I love that. A great many were taught because the Bible matters, doctrine matters, theology matters. Sometimes we might get caught up in having the most comfortable chairs of any sanctuary in America. Yeah, not really. Or what our lighting is like or our ambiance is like. And it's not that those things are unimportant, they're secondary. What is important, what is primary, is that Scripture is systematically taught, exegetically taught, that we might know the heart of God. And I find it very interesting. We have this little parenthetical remark in verse 26 that this is the first time they're called Christians. Up to this point, they've been called saints. They've been called followers of the way. Now they're called Christians, which actually means little imitators of Christ. So the church has gotten to the point where they have understood where we have understood how we ought to live. We ought to be imitators of Christ. Well, let me tie the message together. As I think about Antioch, I think about the United States. I think we are Antioch today. I think we are living out Isaiah 520. Woe to you if you call evil good and good evil, if you call darkness light and light darkness, if you call what is bitter sweet and sweet, bitter woe to you. And yet we love this country, and rightly we should. And we love the heritage of this country, and rightly we should. Yet the truth is, we are now Antioch. Antioch was filled with idolatry, Artemis, and Apollo filled with immorality. There were many who were atheistic, some who were agnostic and a small church. And we look at this country that we love so much and we realize that we are Antioch and we could just constantly say, oh, for the good old days. And some of us are old enough to see very clearly that the country we live in today is very unlike the country we lived in when we grew up. Some of you aren't old enough to know that. It is radically true. And we say and we pine after the good old days. Or, or we see that we have an opportunity for the church to shine. We see that we have an opportunity to be red hot for Jesus. We see that we have an opportunity to share the gospel and we have more fish in the sea than we've ever had before because we have more that are far away from the Lord than this nation has had in any time in its history. And then we remember, God has worked in Antioch before. God has done miraculous things in Antioch before. And God has changed cities like Antioch, nations before. And if God has done it in the past, he can do so in the present and the future. And we've always been 100% dependent on God all the time. But we haven't been all that aware of it. But with the changing of the tide and a culture shift like perhaps we've never seen before... We now are more aware that we are dependent on Christ and the spirit of Christ than ever before. And we have a God that's been in Antioch and many came to Christ and many were discipled in Christ. Let me tell you how Antioch is not won. Antioch is not won by bombastic, angry Christ followers. Do you know who listens to bombastic, angry Christ followers? Fellow angry, bombastic Christ followers. They have their own echo chamber. If you don't believe me, go on Facebook. You can find a couple of these individuals. They're always posting. And then there's a whole series of responses. They're the same people all the time. And they say the same things about this nation I love. And it's always, always demeaning. Nobody on there is saying, will you tell me how to come to Jesus? Because that's not even part of the discussion. It's always them, those. And them and those are not us. And there's this mentality that is just negative. This is how Antioch is one. Verse 20 people who preach Jesus. Verse 21, when the hand of the Lord is upon the church. Verse 23, when we have people who remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24, when we have people like Barnabas who are good and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And verses 25 and 26, when we have people like Barnabas who are less concerned whose name is on the marquee and more concerned with discipling the church, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, so that the laity can do works of ministry. That's actually what the text says, that those who lead the church are to equip the laity to do acts and service of ministry. That's how Antioch is won. And we have a model Now you listen to those verses and you say, I've got four or five of those or three or four of those and well done, well done. But I suspect that all of us have a little bit more whether it's acts of good works or or faith or not worrying about who gets the attention or being real disciples and the church being all about learning the word and then living the word and being dependent upon the Lord. Maybe there's one or two of these that we say, yeah, I need to up my game. I need to take the next step in my relationship with Jesus Christ because Antioch matters. Antioch matters. God even raised the heat on his apostles to send them out because Antioch matters. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts. It reminds me of so many wonderful things that some at Highland are doing. And yet it also reminds me of so many areas where I and others have a lot of work to do. And Father, we're thankful that we are dependent on you. May we even be more aware of our complete dependence on you. And may we love the people of our nation, love the people of our world like you do. And may you use us where we work, where we live, where we recreate, where we go to live Christ, to speak of Christ, and to have the love of your Son Christ that we ought. Father, we know that our nation matters to you, and it matters to us. Use us to reach a small segment of our nation without being unaware and without being uninvolved, but involved and aware of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.